Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So we are coming to towards the end of our look at uh, William Wells Brown, uh, his uh, various works, uh, with uh, his final memoir called My Southern Home. Uh, the, the Library of American Collection, which I'm basing this series off of, also includes about 18 speeches and, and letters that he pu um, publicized. A lot of these were speeches he gave during the during his time in, in England. Uh, we also have some speeches he gave to annual meetings of the American Slavery Society, American Anti-Slavery Society, I should say. Um, a couple things he published, like a response to criticism of The Black Man, the book we just uh, looked at. Um, but I don't think I'm going to do an episode on these because they, they, they do kind of repeat a lot of the themes we've already talked about. And um, the individual speeches themselves are are not I mean, they're edited pretty well in that they're not always they're not repetitive in the sense that this, he's saying the same thing every time. It's not a stump speech he gave. But still, I think if in the context of the entire things we've been looking at over the last uh few episodes i'm not sure we need to do a full episode on the public letters so i'll just kind of uh be a little bit lazy there and end this series with a, a couple episodes on my southern home but um i think this is really a nice interesting book to look at um because it does show an evolution in the thought of william wells brown in the decades after the end of slavery at least the decade and a half after the end of slavery it's a you know, the vast majority of the book is, is kind of a later day memoir. I mean, this is actually the second memoir of Brown's that we looked at. The first was our very first text, the narrative of William Wells Brown about his escape from slavery. Um, we have other autobiographical elements in Clotel and in The Escape. So um, I actually, I didn't realize till I was reading My Southern Home how much of his own private life, his own life was, was being used in those fictional stories like the escape and clotel he actually was drawing uh, from things he saw and witnessed and and you know experienced and so my southern home you know although the character the names are of the major players are fictionalized like uh you know they are people that owned him uh the, some of the major characters like mr and mrs Gaines, reappear that's of course the same name he used in the escape uh so he's just repeating that and for the first half of my southern home if you've read clotel and you've read the escape you're going to find a lot of the same stories coming back and that's fine uh he's he's doing a little bit of um of revisiting some of those older older characters uh, characters is the wrong word older figures in his life uh with a little bit of more time passing between his own uh period as experience as a slave and an anti-slavery ad advocate into someone trying to come to terms with 
what the end of slavery has meant for black Americans and what he sees as the future of black America. So My Southern Home was written in, in uh, 1880 and he dies in 1884. So it's a much older man writing this book. And as I'll talk about in the next episode, <clears throat> I won't say too much of it here, um, although there's hints of it in the earlier part, but in the second half when he really gets into Reconstruction, I guess it's the last third of this book, the first two thirds cover slavery, uh, the last third covers his experience of going back to the South after slavery ends, and he really does come off at times like a moralist, someone who's saying, you know, this is what black people should do. And black people should stop drinking. They should be more. Uh, uh, they should work harder. They should patronize their own businesses. They should be. Uh, you know, he's he comes off a little bit like a black nationalist at times. You know, which is something he sort of resisted, I think, during his anti-slavery writings, where he was kind of against colonization. He he did think black people have a place in the United States. They earned it through labor. He doesn't change his view on that. But he does talk a lot more about black people, kind of of collective self-help, of patronizing black businesses, of education, of craft, of, of you know, he, there's a mixture of things like you, the kinds of things you hear in Booker T. Washington, Brown was saying towards the end of his life. Um, but he also incorporates a little about what would you recognize from someone like W.E.B. Du Bois, where he's saying black people need to to raise the uh their intellectual level and focus on study and, and, you know, get an education. So it's just, I, I just want to say that, you know, someone reading this now will, will, you know, kind of hear hints of like someone like a Bill Cosby, not, not the rapist Bill Cosby, but the, you know, the moralist Bill Cosby, right. Um, in suggesting that African-Americans do more to uplift themselves. Um, so that's going to be something more of a theme in the later half. But the first half of this book, My Southern Home, really does tread a lot of ground we've seen before. And that's, I mean, that's fine if you just pick up My Southern Home and read it. I think it's a great introduction to William Wells Brown. But if you've just read The Escape in Clotel and his narrative like I have, you do find it's, the repetition is hard to ignore. ignore. Now, another thing, and this is this is a bit subtle, I, I think, in this book, but um, Brown in 1880 is approaching this topic in this kind of second narrative he wrote a little bit. Um, now, he's quite personal and direct and opinionated when he's talking about, like, the Reconstruction era. But when talking about slavery uh, and some aspects of, of post-slavery life, too, but I guess in general, when he's talking about whites, he's a little bit more distant. He's not the say he doesn't have quite the polemist approach he had in his earlier writings. He's not quite, I guess, as uh, direct and aggressive in condemning white people as he was in some of his earlier works. He's a little bit more, I guess, reflective on on slavery as kind of a, a something in the deeper past. Something he's he's a little more analytical about it, I think, in this book, than he is in Clotel or The Escape or or those kinds of works. Even though he's dealing with similar topics, he's uh, uh, I guess a little bit more even-handed than he than he was before. And it's not that he's you know not condemning slavery, uh, 
it's it's just it's somehow in the tone and some of the ways he approaches certain topics. Um, I think he's not quite as as hostile. Maybe because that that fight about slavery's been won, and there's new fights to be had. So he's instead kind of approaching it more like a, a you know, a, a sociologist might or a historian might approach the topic. Uh, anyways, that's just something I think I, I, I kind of picked up on here in the text. So as this book opens, we, we basically pick up with his birth in um, the early 19th century uh, uh, Missouri. Um, with Poplar Farm, I think this is the same name he gives in in the Escape. Um, it's not the real name of the plantation he was on, as, just as Mr. Gaines and Gain, Doctor Gaines, isn't the same um, person he was owned by when he was born. It's just the the pseudonym he uses. Not an uncommon thing in some of these these narratives. Um, I think some there was the direct naming of people, but but that's what he does. He's using the, he's not using the same name he used in. Well, Clotel, he's not really, he's borrowing vignettes and stories from time to time from it, from his life and the stuff you see here. But I think it's in the narrative and the escape where you have the most autobiographical uh, early work, at least if, you know, you know, the same kind of stories that come up again here in an autobiographical form. Um, so he writes about Dr. Gaines. Dr. Gaines, the proprietor of Poplar Farms, was a good-humored, sunny-sided old gentleman who, always feeling happy himself, wanted everybody to enjoy the same blessing. Unfortunately for him, the doctor had been born and brought up in Virginia, raised in a family claiming to be the FFVs, but in reality was comparatively poor, marrying Miss Sarah Scott Pepper, an accomplished widow lady of medium fortune. Dr. Gaines emigrated to Missouri, where he became a leading man in his locality. Now, FFE means First Families of Virginia, so it's like, you know, old wealth in Virginia. So we get the, basically the background, physic, yeah, the physical description of Popular Farm and mostly the, the description of, of, of Gaines. And here was the first thing that struck me, because so much in his early work, he's emphasizing the hypocrisy of Southern religion, but he writes this. For his Christian zeal, I had the greatest respect, for I always regarded him as a truly pious and conscientious man, willing at all times to give his means the needful in spreading the gospel. End quote. It's not sarcastic, though. He doesn't present this tidbit in a sarcastic way, uh, as you might expect. Um, he does present him sort of as a gentleman. Uh, nevertheless, there's the subtext of sexual violence and brutality. He doesn't deny that. In fact, he retells the story that appears in The Escape of the person visiting, seeing the young slave boy who looks almost white, uh, and then the, that visitor saying, oh, your, your son looks just like you, Mrs. Gaines. And then the embarrassment that comes when it's revealed that, sh that this was a slave. Uh, quote, Billy, a quadroon of eight or nine years, was among the young slaves in the doctor's house, then being trained up for a servant. Anyone taking a hasty glance at the lad would never suggest that a drop of Negro blood coursed through his blue veins. A gentleman whose acquaintance Dr. Gaines had made, but knew nothing of the later family relations, called at the house in the doctor's absence. Mrs. Gaines received the stranger and asked him to be settled and remain till the host's return. While thus waiting, the boy, Billy, had occasion to pass through his room. 
The stranger, presuming the lad to be the son of the doctor, exclaimed, How do you do? And turning to the lady, said, How much he looks like his father. I should have known it was the doctor's son if I had met him in Mexico. End quote. So that's exactly word for word almost what we saw in The Escape. Now, one thing we get in My Southern Home that we didn't get in, I think, uh, the narrative or Clotel even or in The Escape is a lot of descriptions of like the daily lives and beliefs and practices and culture of African-Americans in slavery. I guess we got like the jumping over the, the, the broom thing and the marriage, some things on marriage, how black people responded to, um, to the separation of family and things like that. But here we get a lot more on, on amusements and entertainment and the holidays that they celebrated and things like that. For instance, we got uh, the coon hunt days uh, described here in chapter one, as well as a, as another example of of how as an example of how slaves relaxed and, and built up a little bit of a culture for themselves. Uh, how it ties to to religion. We have a character here, Dinky, or a, a person, I guess. I don't know what his real name would have been. Uh, the conjurer who kind of gave this ritual a supernatural uh, context. All right. Um, now, in chapter two, he, he moves on to discussing religion and religious teachings, uh, which is, of course, an old theme. And it's something we've we've seen several times before in pretty much everything he's written, where he Wells Wells Brown, William Wells Brown, wanted to focus on the hypocrisy of, of the religious instruction that slaves received. And again, this is an old example we've seen before, but. Uh, we have him, uh, we have word for like a quote of one of these uh, preachers saying, uh, now when correction is given to you, you either deserve it or you do not deserve it. But whether you really deserve it or not, it is your duty. The almighty God requires that you bear it patiently. You may perhaps think that it's hard doctrine, but you should consider it right that you must needs think otherwise of it. Suppose then that you deserve correction, but you cannot say that it is just and right that you should meet with it. Suppose you do not, or at least you do not deserve so much, or you or so severe correction for the fault you committed. You perhaps have escaped a great many more, and are at last paid for all. Or suppose you're quite innocent of what is laid to you, your charge, or suffer wrongly in this in that particular thing. It is not possible that you have done. So, is it not possible you have done some other bad things which were never discovered, and that Almighty God, who saw you doing it, would not let you escape without punishment one time or another? Unquote. Of course, a very self-serving uh, message, uh, but, you know, and we see how religion is being used to prop up the institution of slavery. Again, kind of a very, very old theme for for William Wells Brown. It was in his f first narrative, the little narrative of his life as a slave. Um, so um, what else do we have here? Um Oh, we got some hints here as well of, of, of slaves using their agency to uh, create a little property for themselves. He calls it Negro wit, the use of Negro wit or something like that. But it's basically creating spaces of autonomy um, and agency, whether it's collecting sap and doing something with that on the side or whatever. Um, so hacking religion, that's another thing that's kind of hinted at here, too. Chapter three uh, is a story we've heard actually two other times. We saw it in The Escape, and we see it in, I think, Clotel 
as well, and that is the the the, the slave dentistry thing. And we actually have Cato reappearing. Cato from the Escape re makes re makes another appearance here, and it's the same guy essentially. Um, and we have all the stories we've seen before of like uh, Hannah's husband being sold off, and then Cato being given to or Hannah being given to Cato as a as a as a slave wife, and Cato being somewhat a favored slave, being trained in the as a doctor and, and taking in patients from neighboring plantations and then pulling teeth and all that kind of stuff. That's all repeated here. In fact, he presents this with a, almost like a play with, you know, Bill and then what he says, Dr. Gaines, what he says, Cato, what he says, just like a play. It's almost like it's lifted, uh, almost like it's lifted directly from the escape. He even uses the same, uh, this version even uses the same picture uh, that we see in, I think it's Clotel, um, which also had pictures. Uh, a picture, it's, it's, it's captioned as Negro Dentistry, and we see a figure, presumably Cato, on the ground, sitting on this other slave and yanking at his teeth with, uh, with some kind of tool. Um, then, as we get into chapter four, uh, he comes back to this topic of slave marriage and slave trading and how they interact, how slave marriages were broken up and not respected and how marriages could be used to um, help build up, get others, some slaves to support the system to a degree. Uh, of course, this is what we saw in the escape where Hannah found her husband sold off and, and then Cato being given to the, to the um, or Hannah being given to, to Cato we actually have the same quote we have in the escape where Mrs. Gaines says shut up this moment what do you know about love I didn't love your master when I married him and people don't marry for love now so go put on your calcliffe dress and meet me in the kitchen um, basically forcing her to marry um, when we get to the the buying and selling of slaves we also have a little bit more on the the packaging of slaves I've talked about this before several times where uh, you know, you have the slave trader trying to get the correct age out of slaves and the, the slaves being trained to, to, to fib about how old they were. And then the slave traders trying to ex get the real age through trickery and asking the right questions and things like that. Like there's one case where he says, I'm 29. And the guy's like, well, I don't, I don't really know if you're 29. How do you know that? And he'll say something and he says, well, how many masters have you had? And he said, maybe four. And the slave trader says, well, well how, what's the longest you've been with one? And he might say 10 years. And he's like, ah, oh, it doesn't seem right that, that you had four masters in only 29 years. And trying to get the truth, extract the truth out of them in this way. Um, but again, these are stuff that's pulled right from the escape. So if you read the escape, these chapters are all going to be really, really familiar uh, to you. Um, chapter five, we see uh, something new. I'll say uh, that I don't remember seeing in his previous uh, narratives or fiction. And that is a discussion on economic development in the South and the limits of it. Um, quote, Dr. Gaines and his wife having spent a heated season at the North, traveled for pleasure and in seeking information upon the modes of agriculture practiced in the free states, returned home filled with new ideas with which they were anxious to put into immediate execution. And therefore, a radical change was at once commenced. Two of the most interesting changes proposed were the introduction of the plow, which was to take the place of the heavy, unwieldy one in use, and a washing machine, 
instead of a hard hand, a hard hand rubbing them practiced. The first called forth much criticism among the men in the field where it was Christian, the Yankee Dodger, end quote. Um, now, this is, of course, something scholars have explored is to what degree was the South like industrializing and modernizing and to what degree was that compatible with slavery? Right. So you'll sometimes hear people who are like Southern apologists say, well, slavery was on its way out because of the emerging industrialization in the South. Right. But when you look actually at factories in the South, you know, they were worked by slaves in many cases. Um, and slaves were paid wages, but those wages went to the masters, right? And you had slaves living in cities, somewhat more free, I guess more autonomous than they would have been on the plantations, but still not getting a wage directly. Um, and we actually saw the story here of the, where Brown tricked uh, an illiterate free man into being whipped for him. I don't know if you remember that story from his narrative. Uh, it shows up here again, too. So there was, you know, this is how you could chastise a, a slave who was maybe hundreds of miles away working in the city uh, for, at a factory is actually send a note and say, take this to the police and they whip you and they would send the bill for the whipping to your master. Um, that kind of stuff apparently happened, at least according to Brown. But the point I'm trying to make here is the South was introducing new technologies and uh, it was entirely a backward place. And it was capable of reforming its agriculture, especially in the border states and adjusting its economy to, to fit the times. Now in the deep South and the cotton states, that was so profitable, right? That they didn't have that same incentive. But in some of the border states, you did have that incentive to, to repurpose your slaves into industrial workers or or whatever, rail workers, or whatever might be necessary. Um, and I think he's getting a little bit to this question of economic development um, in this chapter. And just, just the point being, uh, slavery wasn't necessarily on its way out just because industrialization was was coming. It's, it's, it was, the South was figuring out ways up until the end to incorporate their system of slavery into into emerging industries all right um this chapter also has a bunch of examples of slaves tricking masters quote both doctor and mrs gaines were easily, easily deceived by their servants indeed i often thought that mrs gaines took peculiar pleasure in being misled by them and even the doctor with his long experience and shrewdness would allow himself to be carried off on almost any pretense pretext title pretext now the important thing with this i think and i think one thing brown is somewhat getting at here we're talking focusing on local amusements and traditions and holidays and the the spaces of autonomy that, that slaves could create for themselves is that that sort of helps the system survive if you if you create too much of a black iron prison that people can't escape at all but they can see through it. It's a glass. I guess it's not black iron prisons, the wrong example, because you could see outside of it. If you're totally restricted in everything you do, but you can see outside what life is like for free people, that's not going to be a sustainable system for very long. But if you give them those little bits of day to day freedom, you know, whether it's the wedding, the marriage, whether it's uh, letting them trick you a little bit, whether it's, you know, that, that might be resistance 
as well, but it also creates some give in the system, right? So, anyways, lots of good stuff in my Southern Home. It's a really, really good book, and this is this would be my go-to book for you if you wanted to just read one of these things by William Wells Brown. Clotel is important, but I think this is this has kind of everything in it, and and, and you also have him coming at it as older man reflecting on slavery after it's been dead for 15 years as the south is changing into something that's you know still has the burden of slavery but and, and the, the historical memory of it and the social limitations on black people and all that but it's, a, it's still a very different world than the one he grew up in as a young as a, as a boy all right um all right, chapter six, mostly about uh, local amusements, shows, various types of entertainment, um, gambling, other things that slaves could do for, for amusement. But sometimes this black culture that's being used is co-opted by the whites. For instance, during, a, during when visitors were at a popular farm, Dr. Gaines had Cato sing a song or crack a joke for the, quote, amusement of the company. Um, or have servants, slaves, I should say, give, give toasts in, and in so doing that, provide a little bit of entertainment for the whites. So I guess we're reminded of just how intimate and connected these worlds are, even in terms of their culture. Um, chapter seven gets into the superstitions that are, that black people embraced. Um, about witchcraft and the devil, uh, uh, curses, all this kind of stuff. If you've read with me Charles Chestnut's uh, work, uh, The Conjure Woman, Gooford Grapevine, those wonderful stories, um, none of this will be that unfamiliar with you. But he talks a little bit about storytelling and folklore and religious beliefs and superstition and, and all that kind of stuff as it developed in in the South. But particularly important here is belief in the devil. Um, and then he also gets into some of the rituals and games that had made this culture real, um, made it exist in a real sense. Um, chapter eight deals with slave hunting. So again, kind of an old topic, but one of the more brutal ones, he, he gets into the the, the slave catchers, the professional slave catchers, the, the who train dogs. Um, remember the advertisements we saw before in, in, in Clotel? That kind of is brought up again here. Again, there's not that much new in these first chapters. Um, all this has been touched on before. I think what's new, I guess, the most new part is where he really digs into the culture of African-American slavery. So next we have chapter nine, which again kind of gets back to culture, and we see uh, Christmas celebrations being described here. Um, the supper they would eat, the music they would sing, the kind of ornamentation they would create. Um, and it's just a wonderful little vignette of Americana, I guess. Um, it's, it's great to see these asides. In such a brutal system, you, you get... This, this, these little bits of of, of culture, um, well described, and so easy to, to ignore that stuff and focus um, on the field and the labor and the whip and all that. But you know, 
this was part of black culture. So I appreciated that. Um, chapter 10 brings us to the color line again. Um, and this is something that, that certainly William Wells Browns was focused on quite a lot in his work. Um, and here he focuses on a, a young woman named Lola. And here's how he's described. Um, the lady left the premises as mysteriously as she had come, and nothing more was ever seen or heard from her, certainly not by the Negroes. The child, which was evidently of pure Anglo-Saxon blood, was called Lola and grew up among the Negro children of the place to be a bright, pretty girl to whom her adopted mother seemed very much attached. At the time of which I write, Lola was eight years old, and her presence on the plantation began to annoy the white members of Dr. Gaines's family, especially when strangers visited the place. The appearance of Mr. Walker, the noted slave speculator on the plantation, and whom it was said had been sent for, created no little excitement among the slaves. And great was the surprise to the blacks when they saw the slave trader taking Isabella and Lola with him as departure. Unable to sell the little white girl at any price, Mr. Walker gave her to Mr. George Savage, who, having no children of his own, adopted the child. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, uh, it's, it's quite similar to what we saw in, in Clotel where uh, in that case the situation was a little bit different where the her owner the light-skinned uh, slaves uh, owner was having a relationship with her and they had a kid but when he married he had to get rid of her so he sold her off uh, to someone else it's it's kind of a similar tale to that and the ending is also similar in that we see Lola eventually dying of a broken heart after being sold off and and you know you know, being abandoned by these people that she developed feelings for. Um, so, in fact, he reuses a photo, he, uh, or a picture, not a photo, a picture of from Clotel of the Leap of the Fugitive Slave, which is a, um, a picture of the suicide of Clotel, which I guess the, the way she suggested Lola dying of broken heart and suggested suicide. Um and then chapter 11 opens up with the domestic slave trade. Um, and here he includes the flogging story, how he tricks a free black into being flogged. Um, but largely he focuses on this guy Walker, this local uh, slave speculator who, you know, would buy slaves and sell them down in New Orleans. And here's a lot, again, about the packaging and the playing around with the ages and trying to uh, find out the truth, you know. And, and I described this in earlier chapters as the kind of like different ways that slave traders tried to package their slaves, right? Or even owners tried to present the slaves they're trying to sell in a, in a light that would get them a higher price, right? Like the more disobedient slaves would get less price than the ones who appeared more obedient um, or younger, older, whatever it might be. Um, more educated perhaps or you know that might affect the price more moral right remember Clotel was sold off because of her her apparent morality so um, a lot of good stuff in here in this chapter as well so with uh, these first half the first half of my southern home we're still deep in slavery this this account really does get into reconstruction and contemporary politics it, it becomes very polemical about what black people should do now to improve their their station but that's the final later chapters the final third of the book 
the first two-thirds really rehash a lot of the things we've already been talking about in terms of the experience of slaves and you know that's that so although it's not new i think this is a great introduction to william wells brown i think it pulls everything together and adds a little bit that we haven't seen yet so if you're if you want like a cost effective or time effective way to get me introduced to William Wells Brown. I think my southern home is where to go, to be honest. Um, but I don't know. But that's take, this takes us about halfway through the book, uh, about 100 pages into it. Yeah, a little bit less. And there's, there's a little bit less than 100 pages left. So I am going to, uh, in the next episode, finish up my thoughts about my southern home and get a little bit deeper into the question of Reconstruction politics. Um, and and the relationships between blacks and whites in the post-war period uh, in the next and final episode on William Wells Brown. Um, yeah, overall, I just think this is a really great book that exposes the nitty-gritty relationships. I think, for example, the relationship between blacks and whites in the South, how, just how close and intimate and day-to-day the oppression of slavery was. Um, and how real it is. I mean, Walker, the slave speculator, is like a, a real light. He's like a villain, right? That's how he's presented. Larger than life villain for these slaves in Missouri. Because it meant if he came to town, it meant some of you were going to be sold down to New Orleans. And but he's, a, he, you know, he's not in any history books that I know of. You know, he doesn't appear. He's not a major player in our historical memory of slavery. But for this locale. And for the people he interacted with, he was notorious. He was famous. I mean, and someone terrifying. So it's it's that kind of intimacy and uh, that day-to-day drama and anxiety and uh, all these things going on that make the study of slavery for me so interesting and, and fascinating. And I've been studying it for, for years and still uh, find find reading about it and exploring it fascinating. So anyways, um, great book. Actually, it's got a great audio book, too, um, by James K. White is the reader. He's read uh, many great things on LibriVox, including it looked like the like the complete letters of Mark Twain or something, like 80 hours, some incredible achievement. Um, but he does really he does a really good job on the dialect. And he, he previously read uh, The Conjure Woman by Charles Chestnut. And when that's written almost entirely in in dialect. And so having an audiobook for, for a work like this is useful. So anyways, that's all my thoughts on the first half of My Southern Home. I'll explore the rest of this autobiography um, in the next episode as I close up my look at, at William Mills Brown. So uh, as always, thanks for listening to what I'm saying about these books. And thanks for joining me in this exploration of Brown's writings. And I'll see you next time. Well, you won't be worried when when the sun go down. When the sun go down, you'll never be worried when when the sun go down. When the sun go down.